ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. These days, Alex Blackwell is a genetic counsellor. She works in the complex and massively sensitive world of prenatal genetic testing. Alex was considering becoming a doctor for a while, but she had a few other things going on in her life at the time, like playing international cricket for Australia. Alex is a former Australian captain who led her side to victories in the World Cup and the Ashes series. She grew up in the country where she played cricket with her twin sister Kate, who also played for Australia, knocking a ball around her parents' and grandparents' properties. Alex Blackwell is a much-loved and respected figure in the sport, who's brought a fair bit of culture change to the institution, and she's used the lessons of leadership and gentleness in her new life as a genetic counsellor. Hi, Alex. Welcome. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Genetic counsellor. What does a genetic counsellor do? Uh, We use our skills in science and medicine and our, our skills in talking to all sorts of different types of people and help them through... Uh, their experience perhaps um, having a child with a genetic condition or being uh, a part of a family where there's a genetic condition running through it and understanding their risk and their options to perhaps find out more about that and then provide options for perhaps um, health care that is specific to them or decisions around pregnancy and having children. So you're the person that's present at the hospital or the clinic at that moment when, I'm trying to remember the jargon of the time because it's been a, since a while since I've been a, an expecting dad where you do the uh, nuchal translucency scan or that's what it was a while back and uh, amniocentesis and that kind of thing on the pregnant woman. You've named a couple of things that mm-hmm. still exist and are really important methods that we assess pregnancy and, and risk. Uh, for chromosome abnormality and uh, and other issues. And amniocentesis is still somewhat the gold standard in genetic testing within a pregnancy. But what's fascinating in my job is that the technology changes so quickly. So within the first year of exiting my uni course and embarking on my career as a genetic counsellor, non-invasive prenatal testing came in. And that meant that not only were we looking at nuchal translucency ultrasound, we were looking at maternal blood samples that actually have fetal DNA in them. And we're able to have a much more accurate assessment on chromosome abnormality wow. through a maternal blood test. Yeah, because no one really wanted an amniocentesis because it was invasive. Mm. I remember like when uh, when my wife had the nuchal translucency scan, as I recall, it was like measuring for the thickness of the back of the fetus neck, That's right. the baby's neck, to, as an indication that the baby might have Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. How much more advanced is it in the uh, <clears throat> 20 or so years since I went through that procedure? It's been a while, but you're yeah. on the right path. At that collection of fluid at the back of the neck, it can be an indication of a chromosome issue. It could be a, a heart problem that could cause that thickness. It's a collection of fluid there that's in all babies. And, and, and sometimes it's thicker, sometimes it's thin. A thick measurement doesn't mean there's a problem. It just alerts us that there could be a higher risk of an issue. So it is a fascinating world, very complicated. Yeah, really fraught. (laughs) Um, Really fraught, I would have thought, because there's that moment after the test where the parents or parent is sort of drumming their fingers really expectantly. And are you the person that comes up and says, it's this or it's that, essentially, do you? Yeah, I'm the person who essentially says, computer says, (laughs) increased or or low risk. (laughs) And then I explain how has this calculation come about. We give a a risk figure from a nuchal translucency assessment. Is it a one in a thousand chance for a chromosome abnormality like Down syndrome or is it more like one in 300 or is it one in a hundred? Under one in 300 was considered increased risk. And that really freaks people out when you say, I try not to use the word high risk because one in 299 chance for Down syndrome is actually considered high risk. Increased risk is a better word. So the choice of words and how to frame uh, a number. So to say that just one in 300 would, would have an abnormality based on the signs that we're seeing in your pregnancy. So the biggest chance is there's absolutely nothing wrong. But once you say that it's not quite where we'd like to see things, people shut off and and they tend not to be listening to the next five minutes or so. So you give them some space. Give them some space and um, let them react. You you can never anticipate how people are going to react. 
Are you able to detect for more serious life-threatening conditions in the baby? Well, yes, because we're not just measuring the back of the baby's neck. We're, we're looking at all of the structures on ultrasound and, and major structural abnormality can be observed at that early stage, around 12 weeks. So often I would phrase, let's say we have an increased risk of one in a hundred. I would say, congratulations, your baby is growing nicely. There are no obvious signs of abnormality on ultrasound. We have looked for uh, an assessment on the chance for a chromosome issue like Down syndrome. And it's come up to say that perhaps having a more closer look could be an option for you. It's increased risk. That doesn't mean there is a problem. But let's talk about what we can do to get more certainty, if that's what you would like. So as you were saying, when you've got a, an indication there might be an increased possibility of something that's irregular, you give the news and then you wait, what, five minutes to mm. let the people take it in. What do you do then? And, and what kind of body language do you use, mm. Alex? Because obviously you've got to be really sensitive, I suppose, in the way well, you approach people. I've, I've learnt the hard way. I, I got some negative feedback. I love feedback because it helps you get better, but sometimes it's not easy to hear. And and, and we had a, a case where a family weren't happy with what I told them. And when you hear bad news, sometimes you take it out on the messenger. And I felt that was probably what was going on. But I learned some critical things about body language that this couple actually felt the way I entered the waiting room and called their name indicated to them that there was a problem. I'm not sure that I was any different, but... You can be when you know you're about to give some serious news. It, you have to try and be consistent and um, allow that to be revealed at the right time. And I have to build rapport with these people within the first few minutes. I, I haven't met them before. And how do you do so, that? Do you just quietly walk in and sit beside them or, or what? Uh, or is it better to be blunt and just say this is the situation? They, they've been waiting in the waiting room anxious to hear is it good news or not so good news and so I congratulate everybody on their pregnancy because that's a nice way to break the ice and although you can't always be sure it's a wanted pregnancy but by the by the time they're at 12 weeks getting an ultrasound it usually is so I, I congratulate them I explain who I am and what I'm about to do and then I let them know what their their result is because they've been hanging out for it and the longer you wait the more stress they're going to get. And I need to get into the discussion around what does this mean for you? And and that I only have about you know, 20 minutes perhaps. And so we don't want to waste too much time and and we want to get to the point. And it's, it is difficult, but we can't always anticipate how people react. I, the highest risk I can give on a nuchal translucency is one in two. And if we get a one in two chance, almost certainly that child has a chromosome abnormality. But we need to discuss what does the risk of one in two mean for you? And actually, I, I thought that number would be a real shock to some families. Sometimes they say, well, that's okay. Tell me more. I, I'm, maybe I would like to find out so I can prepare to have a child with Down syndrome. So I can use the rest of the pregnancy to meet other families, to, to ensure that the best care is possible when this child is delivered. So it's not all about stopping pregnancies. It can be about giving people confidence to go ahead with, with more certainty. Of course, I'm thinking most of the time, in fact, maybe what, 95, 99% of the time, <laughs> you're the bearer of good news. Mm, mm. Yeah, it, it became a bit repetitive. Really? Good news. My spill was pretty easy. Congratulations. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> you, 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 your baby looks great, growing yeah. well, and you're low risk. 95% of the time I was able to give that spill, and, and it was fantastic. Some people had gone through multiple cycles of IVF and invested a lot of emotional energy and finances to get to that point, 12 weeks, and they are just thrilled to hear the news that things are going well. They just want to hear also that, you know, that there's a heartbeat, there's, a, there's everything we should expect. I never took that for granted, that opportunity to be there with um, people planning pregnancy, but um, the 5% of the time where we were increased risk, so we're in that one in 300 or higher risk than that, that's when my job really started. And I felt like that's where I can bring all my skills and that's the most important thing. How do you do the job, Alex? Mm. Like, 
what kind of emotional resilience do you need to be need to have to be in this situation? What's how many times a day are you breaking this news? Well, this was my first job and I was um, in a private ultrasound clinic and I was seeing up to sort of eight to ten patients a day and Oof. when you have an increased risk result that pushes the other patients a bit behind and they get a little bit upset. There's nothing more important than being there with this family to discuss what, what does this increased risk mean and and actually sometimes that those people are sitting in front of me, they've been sent or referred by their GP or obstetrician, they're not really aware of what they were getting into. So it's really important that the referrers actually describe what is this test and is it what you want? Because once you've got the information, you can't unlearn it. See, every time I say nuchal translucency scan, I have to think for a second to pronounce it properly. And, <laughs> and I just think for, people, for a lot of people, they might find being intimidated by these terms and might, might even misunderstand mm. and might even think you're somehow responsible for a result mm. that's not as positive as they hoped it would be or not the, way, what, not the kind of thing. Uh, they might treat you like someone like, I don't know, Qantas announcing a delayed flight or something or the car has is, is, is been misrepaired mm. or something. Is it like that? Yeah, people... Uh, getting information that they didn't order. You know, mm. people want certainty and um, they want things to go well and they never anticipate. You never, even myself, I've had a, a baby and I try not to think about the things that could possibly be uh, uh, different or, or risky within that pregnancy. So, yeah, you can be the bearer of difficult news. Can It's a tough job and it was nice that I could help people get to the position that they needed to get to, whatever was best for them, and to have no judgment in that because it's not my decision, it's not my life, I don't have their context, and it's fascinating. I still need to deliver all the options to people if that's what they want to hear, even when they say to me there's no chance I would stop a pregnancy for religious reasons, uh, and I completely respect that. However, sometimes... You don't know what you're going to do until you're in that position. And I've had people who, even though they have religious beliefs that tell them one way or the other what, what's acceptable, you just don't know what's ahead. And sometimes those people have actually appreciated the options more than they anticipated. So, yeah, you just don't know how you're going to react when you get this type of news. You haven't really answered my question, though. Which what is how, was the question? It's how you cope with it at all. I mean, hey. the mo- emotional roller coaster of every single day mm. in the job, which is you're going to have people who are who are elated and people who are confused, mm. people who are perhaps devastated, and on a day to day basis, mm. there's so much emotional intensity in the work you do. Are you able to mm. somehow? I don't know. Do you have, do you have like sort of buffers in you that can sort of absorb all that furious emotion that's around your work? Maybe there is a buffer in there somehow that's um, developed over time. Playing elite sport that that may help. I feel like I do difficult things all the time, and that's a part of life. Life's pretty tough. But how how do I cope with the, those emotional conversations over and over? Well, the wonderful thing within the genetic counselling profession, we're quite a small profession and we have what's called supervision and we are required to have supervisors who we can go to and talk about how did that go. And they check in on you? They check in on you and you have a counselling supervisor who's typically a a senior genetic counsellor and you have a medical or genetic supervisor who's maybe a geneticist or some other um, scientific or uh, medical expert. So, so it's not just a bunch people... of anxious doctors who go, <laughs> you, you go and talk to them. You go and talk to them. The well, parents. that's why we have the role yeah. because you can, just through what we've shared today, you can see and hear how difficult this, these things are. Skills, the doctors don't yeah. have the time necessarily. They do wonderful genetic counselling actually, our geneticists. But our genetic counsellors are able to take on a bit more of that load and check back in with families and uh, reiterate what did that mean and and draw out a diagram to help describe and just take more time, which is absolutely required in situations like that. I was just thinking as you were talking to me then that as a former like professional top Australian cricketer, 
you're going to be in situations where you have a stadium of people very happy with you or very unhappy with you <laughs> and expressing themselves perhaps quite fulsomely uh, directly to you. Either, I suppose that helps you. Uh, does that help you in a way or has that trained you to be able to sort of ride out those kind of, that all that drama to some degree? Playing in front of crowds what is not what I'm used to, actually, Richard, because I had most of my elite career as an amateur and there was um, very little marketing put into our sport to get the crowds in the door. And but so, so the crowd pressure is a new thing for me and, yeah, I got there in the end. But what elite sport has taught me is an enjoyment of getting better at something. And, and I think that's the way I look at these difficult conversations it may not always go well, but it's that difficult conversation and getting feedback from it helps you be better at it next time. So there's something in me about wanting to just continually get better at something. And I love that feeling of getting better at it. And that's um, how I felt with cricket. I, I got better very quickly once professionalism came in um, with the last few years of my 15-year career for Australia. And when I could focus my energies completely on cricket. Um, so I, I loved that period of my elite career where the, the rate of getting better was quite exponential. It's quite profound, actually. I wonder how many people really pay attention to enjoying getting better at things. Mm. I think it's taking a moment to enjoy the getting better at things solves a lot of problems, perhaps, in, in life in yeah. general, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's not, I, I use the word exponential, that sort of um, gives an image of getting better um, every day, but it, getting better actually has days where you get much worse. And um, I, I even reflect on this week, I, um, as, as a new mum, and my twin sister also has a, has a child who's just three weeks younger than mine, and I, I took on the babysitting for both of them. So I had the experience of raising twins for a day like my mum did. Right, stereoscopic <laughs> crying, like in both <laughs> yes, ears. Yes, exactly. Both ears, right. Now, now yeah. I thought I was super mum. I, I, the day went beautifully. Right. They were at the naps at the right time. They were feeding right, and um, I even cooked some muffins and we went out for a walk. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I can really do this. Today I have one child, just mine, Edith, and... Um, I had a really near miss with a, a hot tea accident, real close miss. And I realised, yeah, I felt like I went from hero to zero. And But all of these experiences are just helping me be better at at being a mum. It's it's not linear. And I found that with, with cricket as well. My One of my absolute best innings was... Th- the very next match after my worst innings. If I was to look at that whole career, they those two innings lie side by side. And I think that's great. That's always given me hope that if I've had a bad day, the, your very best day could just be the next one. And vice and, versa. And vice versa. Mm. That's right. You, like I said, you're a country girl. <laughs> Which part of the country are we talking about, Alex? The Riverina. Right. So, Near uh, Griffith, around the that's right, that's right. That's right, that area. So... Um, Grew up on a vineyard in a tiny town called Yenda, right near Griffith, which is near Wagga Wagga. I was born in Wagga Wagga because mum having a twin pregnancy, she wanted just a little bit, bit larger hospital. So, so Wagga Wagga was the big smoke, was it? <laughs> That's right. right. It was the right. big smoke. With fancy and, people live. Yeah. Well, and, and plenty of sports people mm. too. I'm very proud of the fact I was born in Wagga Wagga and there, were, there are so many other uh, wonderful athletes who come from that area. And how did cricket come into your life as a small child? Kate and I, being identical twins, we just did everything together. So, And we had parents who made sure all four daughters of theirs had broad experiences. And Four daughters? Four daughters, Almost yeah, four like dad. the Bennett family in <laughs> Pride and Prejudice then. You're one daughter off. That, that's pretty yeah. amazing, right? Yeah, I think once once twins arrived, that was it, right. Richard. Yeah. That was it. So, Two older girls and then twins and, yeah, especially mum driving us around to all sorts of opportunities and not necessarily sort of uh, gender-typical activities. So cricket and soccer were things that Kate and I did and in particular uh, we didn't have a brother who played or a parent who played, uh, which was common back then, um, but we did have a very good friend, Alex Valentine, who is our age and still mates today and went to school with him and um, we followed him, yeah. So we did have a male influence early on in our cricket career. Now, you and Kate, your 
twin sister were the youngest. Mm-hmm. But you weren't known as the babies, were you? How did you get your name? <laughs> yes, we we were the babies. However, my my sister Jane, who's the middle child, um, poor thing, especially when twins follow, she heard that the babies were coming home and actually heard it as the baddies are coming home. So, <laughs> yes, within our family it's a running joke that Kate and I are the baddies. The baddies. The baddies, right. Jane liked to call us. Um, I'm not sure if she still feels that we are the baddies, but, uh, yeah, it takes its toll raising twins. Um, I can't believe how mum and dad did it um, now that I have one child, <laughs> uh, to, to have four at the time and, and twins at the end. It was a big job. So what was the kind of gamut of sport that you, you were encouraged to participate in as, as little girls? Well, we did it all. Um, so cricket and soccer I mentioned, but it started gymnastics, ballet, little athletics. Um, I, I tried netball, loved it, tried hockey, loved it, uh, threw javelin pretty seriously. And uh, at my boarding school I was fortunate to have a very prominent javelin coach in Peter Lawler. It was was my one to one coach, but yeah, just every every possible opportunity. Badminton, I played a little bit at school. Right, and what was it like making the transition <laughs> from playing soccer in the morning to ballet in the late afternoon? Well, that was um, my dear mum just packing so much in, driving all around town with these four daughters, and Kate and I would would go from soccer straight to ballet and. Um, the effort to put those stockings on over the sweaty, grassy knees. I will, it's, it's a really vivid memory of mine. Um, I hated getting those stockings on. Why, why did we need them? Maybe we could have just gone in with the sweaty knees. That's right, but, the grassy uh, knees. You could have been a wood nymph, yeah. couldn't you? But it had to be all very clean and yes. tight hair in a bun and makeup Pristine, and pointy toes. But um, all, mm. all of that, and I enjoyed it. But what was great about ballet was it really developed our sort of coordination and our flexibility and strength in 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 our legs in particular and crickets. You think it's an overarm sport, arms and swinging a bat and bowling and catching, but actually it's really important to have powerful legs, especially as a batter. So maybe it goes down to uh, um, our beginning as ballerinas. Now, you write in your book that you played French cricket. You started playing French cricket and you wonder whether that was just a thing. For we... I played French cricket as a kid too. I absolutely did. And, and you stand, I don't know if you played the same way we did in school, but French cricket meant standing there in this highly protective way with, the, with your legs close together, with the bat directly in front of your legs. That's right. And you'd sort of hold the bat with two hands and sort of batted up into the air, I suppose. What an odd way to play cricket. I think it is odd. And I, I, I wasn't sure that other people played French cricket. So I'm pleased to hear that you did too, Richard. It's all, you know, really defensive because the ball isn't but, being aimed at the wicket. Well, it is, I suppose, but it's being aimed directly at you. And it's not about scoring runs. It's just about protecting your legs and protecting the wicket. And I guess we played that as kids, because it was a more simple version of a bat ball sport like cricket. Cricket's very complicated. Yeah, I know. Have you tried to explain it to people who've uh, never watched it? You see, I think playing French cricket traumatised me against cricket because, you know, you're, essentially you've got this incredibly hard projectile coming at you at high speed, directly at your body. So mm-hmm. I went, oh, uh, tennis for me, I think. That's yeah. what I did. So, so you nonetheless stuck it out and went to cricket cricket. How did you make that transition? Well, we followed um, our mate Alex and went from playing cricket at school at recess and lunchtime to actually playing on the weekends in in boys' cricket teams. Well, they weren't really boys' cricket teams because once Kate and I joined, it was a mixed team, but no other girls played. And I I remember that moment where we transitioned from a soft ball to the six-stitcher. And uh, I just loved receiving a brand new six-stitcher. Um, it's that shiny ball with the prominent seam, uh, six of them, uh, six stitches across. And, yeah, to, to actually play with the boys with a six-stitcher, that was proper cricket. Was it a big deal, you playing with the boys? Well, we were tiny at the time and I, I don't well, think like, I... How are we talking about here? Six, set, well, no, that must have been about eight, nine years old starting to play with the, the six-stitcher. But we, we started in indoor cricket with a soft ball and that was about six years old that we started. And what happened if you bowled out a boy? Oh, their parents 
Wow. Devastated. It was like, the poor kid had to walk off to, to <laughs> chance like, oh, you got out to a girl. Yeah, like it's it was a good lesson in life thing. to learn though, I think, isn't it, in the end? <laughs> a girl or a boy at yeah. eight, eight, nine years of age, oh. they're about the same abilities, no no sort of strength or stamina discrepancies and um, we were just as good as the boys. So those poor boys that got out to Kate and I, I'm sorry if you're out there listening. Um, but, but the woman who <laughs> bowled you out went on to become a test cricketer. So, oh, I mean, exactly. you know. Oh, exactly, yeah. yeah so you claim to fame. You claim to fame. I mean, it's not like you're just like any other uh, woman, girl on the street, are you? So, like, you, you are, you know, an elite sportswoman, so that yeah. has to be said. Yeah, and I, I hope that that's changed now. That I mean, we know with sports, parents on the sideline, um, you know, pushy parents or even sometimes aggressive um, conversations happen on the sideline because... Parents can take sport very, very seriously um, and um, as they should. It's an important thing for their kids to do but, yeah, to, to have the girls out there and, and you can hear that sexism coming through loud and clear. So I'm surprised Kate and I stuck at it but I think if it wasn't for the two of us and um, our wonderful parents who mum would obviously go and have a chat to that parent who said, you got out to a girl, she would have something to say about it and... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was nice to be brought up in a family where girls could do anything. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Alex, how did you and your twin sister Kate as quite young girls manage to build up a girls' cricket team where you were? We, we did get a hard time, as I said, Richard, um, on the field, some sledging from not only the parents on the sideline, but um, the boys started to give us a bit of trouble on the field. And When you say a bit of trouble, what, verbal or was it was oh, it physical? They punch you no, in the arm or something? Nothing right. physical, no, but just that teasing. And yeah. it was so unique to have girls out there playing and, you know, you're no good and what are you doing here and just... In actual fact, cricket, at, at a certain time in the game, it is you against 11 people. And so when you're a batter, you do get a little bit under pressure and sledge sometimes. It's sort of a part of the game. But as a, as a girl amongst a whole bunch of boys on the field, Kate and I ended up not enjoying that enough to stay in it. And we quit cricket. It, we, we were in year five. We were just going to play soccer because that was our other love. But in year six... Mr Cook, Kate's year six teacher at Griffith East Public School, noticed that the girls in the year were very sporty, a very unique sort of mix of skills and abilities, and he thought, right, we, we should actually start a girls' cricket team. He thought we might win the state knockout. So because of that girls' cricket team for the first time at the school, Kate and I signed up. And so we were only out of the game for a year or so, and we enjoyed that team so much that I haven't actually missed a season since that start of that cricket team. So, so Mr Cook is the man who changed your life. Exactly. And and I guess that, that group of girls that we, we played cricket with and Dennis Murphy, who was the coach, and Pam Wardle, who was the school secretary and scorer. So those images still resonate with me. They're very powerful memories to look back on and um, if it wasn't for... Mr. Cook and that group of girls and, and the, the success we had, maybe Kate and I would not have continued playing and we would have, I'd hope we would have gone on to be an, a Matilda playing <laughs> football for Australia, but who knows. It's amazing how these volunteers, teachers or local coaches, parents, the influence that they can have. And uh, we went on of that cricket team, two of them played test cricket. How did you go that in that state school competition knockout though? We won in the end and obviously... You won every, the whole state competition. We, yeah. First year we entered Griffith East Public School, we we made it all the way to Maitland and we, we won the knockout and uh, it was an amazing trip and we got back to school 
we were in year six at the time and we received a package in the mail. Pam Wardle, the secretary, lets the girls know that each of us got a signed poster from Belinda Clark. Belinda Clark was someone I didn't know, didn't know uh, at the time, but she was the Australian captain and she had individually signed uh, these posters to Alex. Congratulations on the win, Belinda Clark. That poster went up on my wall. And, and I you, won. And you, and you weren't aware that there was even an Australian women's cricket team no, at that stage. No, I think Mr. Cook was aware of these honours you could go on to to achieve, but didn't didn't know there was an Australian women's cricket team. I watched a bit on TV, the War Brothers and Michael Slater, who was from that area, um, idolised these people. But that was the first time I knew women played, and uh, that poster was on my wall, right up until such time as I'm a teammate of Belinda Clark. I've made my Australian debut. It's our 21st. So Kate and I invite our Australian teammates to our 21st birthday party on, on the farm in, in Yenda and Belinda's there. And I said, hey, Belinda, come and have a look at this. And I showed her the wall where this poster's <laughs> still hung and she thought, oh, Alex, that's ridiculous. She just thought it was so silly. But that poster meant a lot to me and it, I love telling that story because it highlights to, to other athletes how just that one small act, you go out of your way just a little bit and it can have a huge impact. What was it like to play under her, to see her on the pitch and to see her play after you'd had her poster on your wall mm, all those mm. years? Well, I always heard from then on how good Belinda Clark was and I listened out. I could hear her name mentioned on the radio or um, in the newspaper, look at the scores, and Belinda was impeccable in her technique and she was a fierce competitor and a very good leader. And to, yeah, one day be in her Australian team. She was also at the same time very welcoming and I felt like as soon as I arrived, I was expected to uh, deliver, to uh, that I was ready, that I was, although I was young, I was good enough to be there. And she made that very clear. And th so I had responsibilities even as a, as a young player. How would she let you know what she expected of you? She would flat out say. Right. <laughs> you. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. yeah we, I need you to bowl um, off stump. Okay, so over's finished. All right, well, um, yeah, just a little inconsistent. We need to get that nice tight line. And then I would, after a tour, occasionally receive uh, very personal feedback. She would write a card to congratulate me on the tour and um, spell out a couple of clear things she'd want me to work on. Because, And the way she'd put it was, I want to use you more as a bowler, but I can't at the moment, a little too inconsistent. So go away and work on that. And so those, um, that personal touch to her captaincy, I, I think that was maybe one of the secrets to her long-term success, uh, arguably our greatest captain. Perhaps Meg Lanning has just surpassed her in terms of the on-field feats that are now possible for the Australian team because Belinda and I, we actually played in the very first T20 international for Australia and it was a hit and giggle. We thought it was fantastic. This new format and the serious format was one-day cricket and test cricket, but now that's completely flipped and our Australian women play in T20 World Cups and Com Games and they're winning gold medals and it's just marvellous. You got the nickname Seal on the team. Was that because of your kind of incredible speed, your silken velocity <laughs> as a runner? How did you get the nickname Seal? Oh, I love the water, Richard. Like the water? I'd like to say that... Yep. My love of the ocean mm -hmm. um, is why I have that nickname. Uh, they're wonderful creatures, seals. Beautiful creatures. Um, it, it actually comes from a misheard lyric. And one of my other <laughs> Australian teammates, another fizz competitor, Catherine Fitzpatrick, fastest bowler we've ever seen for Australia, she came up with the term seal because um, there's a song, Our Lips Are Sealed. By the Go-Go's. By the Go-Go's and... Uh, whether it was her in disguise, I think she said, oh, a mate of mine thought it was uh, Alex, uh, sorry, Alex the Seal. Yeah. So you're going to be Seal from now right. on and it's stuck. Alex the Seal. Yeah. Alex the Seal, that's it. <laughs> yeah, because a friend of mine, uh, when she was a kid, she thought that the song Life in the Fast Plane by the Eagles was Life in the Bat Plane. Life in the Bat Plane. Well, that plane sounds like fun. Surely makes you lose your... <laughs> so, yeah, and for you it was Alex, Alex the Seal. That's that was right. That was you. Yeah, that's yeah. lovely. You went to India uh, representing Australia. Tell me about the English player 
whose fine cricketing technique caught your eye? Touring India was always a highlight because um, we didn't get to go there very often. I think this was my second trip to India. It was a quadrangular series, Australia, England, New Zealand and India, the top four nations. And uh, I I noticed um, against England, I was actually 12th, so I got to watch a lot and uh, our team was in a bit of strife because we'd picked up a lot of early wickets, but this number eight batter, Lindsay Askew, was hitting Catherine Fitzpatrick all over the park. And uh, I remember this shot was almost like a back foot straight drive off Catherine Fitzpatrick, our most fearsome bowler. And it went one bounce four towards the sight screen back behind Catherine's um, run up. So yeah, that, that image did stick in my mind. And I ended up um, going to say hello to to Lindsay. Um, and did you hit it off straight away? No, no. Lindsay will hate me saying this, but she doesn't remember me coming up to her at the end of that tournament to say, hey, well done, and I'm Alex. And, um, yeah, it was really just out of respect. There was nothing more to it. Really? You weren't flirting with her? You weren't? Um, no. 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 It's just like, I'd oh. actually heard her name because I'd communicated with her father, Mike Askew, um, about coming over to England and playing at their local cricket club. So I knew of this family. And Mike, um, as soon as you, he's my father-in-law now, sorry, spoiler alert, but uh, he uh, would tell me about his daughter. And so when I got to India and I saw Lindsay hit this six, I thought, yeah, okay, I know who this is. Right. Go up and say hello at the end of um, the tournament. There's a, you know, a few drinks at the end and, yeah, Lindsay has no recollection. Right. <laughs> And you Maybe said, had oh, a few no, your men. dad, one of the world's worst pickup lines of all time. Uh, not <laughs> yeah, that you well, were. that's a terrible pickup line. I know, it's a terrible line, right. but that's not what you were using. You weren't, no. you, weren't, you weren't even thinking at the time. But how did you get to know Lindsay Well, Gatter? yeah, she's my wife now and we've just brought a child into the world too and, yeah, she's an, in, an incredibly important person, obviously, to, in my life and also my cricketing life. I feel like we were together for a majority of my cricket career. I got to know her when I actually did go to England and I saw her again and I thought, oh, hey, I'll go up and say hi. Hey, Lindsay, how are you? And um, because she didn't know that we'd already met, she thought, Alex Blackwell knows my name. How, how's that? All right. And, yeah. So right, she, you were famous she to, start, yeah, right, she, to her mind at that yes, point. Yes, because right. on, I was um, sort of entrenched in the Australian team and and she was sort of early in her her um, international career, but we got to know each other at a place called Lords. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, <laughs> Maryland Cricket Club. So that's right. So, 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 what was the first date you went on then together? Well, it was a non-date, and my um, my friends uh, give me a hard time about this because Lindsay, the lovely person she is, she she wanted to know while I'm in England for these couple of months, you know, is there anything you want to do while you're here? In in particular. And I said, oh, well, I'd like to see some live music in London now that we're here. And, and she said, well, actually, I see lots of live music. I usually get two tickets and hope someone can come. But if not, I, I bring my mum. So I've got a gig oh God, on this Friday. This is like a Jane Austen like... novel after all. This is so slow moving. It's so slow, isn't it? Uh, it was not right. the love at first sight right, okay. story. Oh, I'll bring my mother. Right, that's... I usually bring my mum, but do you want right. to come? And I was right. like. If she doesn't mind and you don't mind, I'd love to. I mean, I wasn't going to organise tickets um, in London, had no idea where to go. And, yeah, so we go to this gig and had a great time and then we went out to a bar afterwards and all our mates were at this gay bar. Had you been to a gay bar before? I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> You'd, you'd notice it if you had before, yeah, probably. I think so. I yeah. mean, it wasn't in my thinking. My, my sexuality wasn't really front of mind. Um, I knew I was probably more attracted to women than men, but I'd never let myself sort of acknowledge that. How but old were you at the time? I was 24, oh, not, not young. That's a, that's quite a, an advanced age, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. So I think there were many factors um, in playing a sport that's male-dominated, that's maybe having difficulty with homophobia, as most sports do. I didn't let myself accept that that was perhaps my sexuality. So, yeah, we went to this gay bar and I just had the best time. And it was all very innocent and dancing and and way too expensive drinks. Seriously, too (laughs) expensive. And and then we get in the cab um, coming home and my mate Charlotte was there too and 
and we all, the three of us were going back to Lindsay's place because I was staying the night there just as a mate. I just remember thinking, oh, I kind of wish Charlotte wasn't here. She's a very good <laughs> friend of mine, so I can say yeah, that. Yeah, but not but, uh, right there at that yeah, time. Yeah, I, sort of, mm. I, I noticed that feeling and that was new. That was new for me to, to feel that I want to be alone with this person. Like I had such a good time. I think when that happens in, in someone's life, that's quite a powerful feeling and a scary one too. Mm. Oh, it's so gay, gay or straight, was, gay or straight. Oh, I mean, yeah, It's a terrifying yeah. feeling in some ways. Oh, I'd never felt that before and I I loved that feeling and, and in a way it was a relief to know that I could have those feelings about someone. You know, I felt a bit abnormal being a young adult, mid-20s and having not allowed myself to have those experiences and I feel that they were sort of outside influences that sort of stunted my development and my acceptance of my sexuality and perhaps I could have had a lot more fun at university, Richard. (laughs) My word, you could have, I think, (laughs) Alex. So are you saying then the whole process of falling in love Mm. was also bound up in the process of coming out to yourself and to other people? Yes, Yes. So once Lindsay and I decided we were going to be an item, um, isn't that a funny thing to say? But um, yeah, we became an item and and I was, um, I just couldn't wait to tell my family. And that says something about them. Yeah, it wasn't ever going to be a problem for um, my family. And I'm very fortunate in that regard, because I know a lot of people still struggle to be their true selves, in whether that be at home or in their workplace. I struggled to be my true self in my workplace. Being a gay athlete, being the first one to actually say it out loud, that was pretty profound. I I made that choice in 2012. Lindsay and I had been together four years before I'd actually come out publicly. I was out to my family, I was out to my teammates, but to freely speak about my relationship when the opportunity came up in the media or take Lindsay to the Allen Border Medal, that took a while. It's sad that I wasn't free to have all that as soon as it was happening. So, yeah, I was the first international female cricketer to actually come out publicly, and it's ridiculous because there were others before me and I don't begrudge them. I I just think about the difficulty they may have faced that didn't allow them to be, and I, I, I feel sad about that. I mean, most people would see me as loud and proud and out. But it was the slowest boiling thing, wasn't it, by the sound (laughs) of things? (laughs) I did end up Mm. uh, leading the Mardi Gras in my baggy green cap. I mean, that's you don't get any more out and proud than that. But it did take a while. And part of me coming out publicly was to make it easier and to resist the subliminal messages in sport and in society that there's something not quite right about you because you have a female partner. There was a fair bit of pearl clutching from male sports figures <laughs> about quote-unquote predatory lesbians mm. in sport at the time. What did you make of that at the time and did that in any mm. way intimidate you or had that intimidated you and mm. was that part of the language that, that made you a bit hesitant about coming out earlier? Oh, definitely. And And I've had predatory lesbians, that whole topic. So men looking from the outside in to women's cricket and making assumptions about what it's like in there, it's the most wonderful environment, the most amazing people. And sometimes you meet the people you love at work and that certainly happens in in cricket like it happens in any other place, those sort of assumptions about the female players look a certain way, that they will be behaving in a certain way, that, they're, that they've got tattoos um, on their arms or, you know, they've got short haircuts, that that means something. Well, those people might be PhDs or, you know, medical doctors, um, just downright awesome people that happen to have female partners. And it doesn't... Well, they might be just rough as guts working class people or country people mm. who are suffering mm. a bit of snobbery too. I mean, right. you know, that comes mm. into it as well, doesn't it? There's, there's some oh, class yeah. issues it's, here it's, too. It's not, that's, how long do we have, Richard? Because we could talk <laughs> about sexism and homophobia in sport, yeah, for a very long time. But yeah, women in sport have very different barriers or pressures than It's a bit men. like Trump being expected to put on tights for ballet after having played get over your grassy knees. Yeah, it's a bit like that kind of syndrome, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. look, I think 
women are expected to look a certain way and 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 do certain things with their lives and their bodies and women who play sport especially those sports that have been traditionally played by men are heroes really of mine because they they are challenging those ideas and comes back to what I was raised to believe that women can do anything and yeah I I think the notion of men having commentary on on the women's game and and feeling like they have to protect women from each other is is pretty disturbing from my point of view it's also quite silly <laughs> at the same time as well just putting all this thing to bed you know after having captained australia you decided it was time to leave cricket in 2018, you announced your retirement from the game. When you left, your teammates were apparently, I've read this, they were polled on which one of them they would most like to be stranded on a desert island with, and the vast majority gave your name. Were you aware of that? Uh, I, I've heard that, yeah. That, that's a lovely thing for them to say, perhaps, because I say so many silly, random things. I tried to educate them on the plane teach them about um, rare genetic conditions. Like, I've got so much I can talk to them about. Um, it was also I, said one of the reasons was because you were oh, excellent yes. at fishing, so you'd actually be able to provide food. That's right. On love, that desert island. Love fishing. <laughs> Grew up on a farm, so pretty good at working things out and building tools and whatnot. So, yeah, it may not be the conversation, Richard, that they were after. It was more the practical Could be ruthlessly side. pragmatic. <laughs> yeah. It's like... Oh, that's, that's awful then. <laughs> 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 like you don't want a web designer with you on that desert <laughs> island, not. do you? you? You want the person who can fish and bring food in. That's right. But it does say, it's a very lovely thing to say about a leader. I don't think many people would say that about the person who's been their leader. It's a nice thing to have said about you, I think. I wonder what you think about that. My leadership style has always been perhaps influenced by, by Belinda, influenced by many other people. I know the power of feeling like you belong. In my book I talk about... The experience of being a part of a sport where you're just you're made to feel that you don't quite belong. So whenever I was in charge, I wanted everyone to feel like they belong and that they have a job to do and I backed them to do it. And I wanted them to not shave off their edges and bring all their, their edginess, their quirkiness to the group because it's so dull if we're all the same. So I loved when people were different and could bring that personality freely to the environment. So maybe maybe I was able to let people feel like they could be themselves around me. I guess having come out publicly when no one else had, that shows others that it's okay. It's okay. You'll be fine. It's actually something to celebrate. It's quite a nice thing to take away. So you're a mum now, like you said. You've got a baby. You've been through that whole process that you, you take other people through mm, as mm. a genetic counsellor. I wonder if there was anything for you to learn being on the other side of that conversation. I was incredibly anxious throughout the pregnancy and just just the uncertainty. Um, well, I, I did all the tests, as you'd imagine, all the tests that you could possibly do without being invasive. Even with all those very plum normal results and low risk, uh, you still have anxiety. For It's, it's uncertain how, how your life's going to change and how you're going to manage. And it was informative as well for me to go through some of those tests because um, I did what's called, we've already mentioned nuchal translucency, amniocentesis, non-invasive prenatal testing, but I actually did another layer of testing, which is preconception carrier screening. So sometimes you can be a carrier of a condition, but completely healthy. If you have a partner who is also a carrier, um, then there would be a one in four chance of serious um, condition. I did that. And you find out things about yourself you never knew. Like what? Well, that you're a carrier of something. You are? Yeah, well, we're all pretty much going to be a carrier of maybe five to eight things. Really? On average, yeah. So now once you find this out about yourself, I'm a genetic counsellor, so that's fine. Okay, great. Cool, I'm a carrier of that. Great. It's, it's not a very serious thing, but I'll avoid it. Um, if I can. But what it does do is open a can of worms for your family because then it's like, oh, okay, well, I now have this information. How does this information affect my broader family? So we talk about in genetic counselling that a test is not necessarily an individual test. We must consider it a family test. And once you have this information about yourself, there may be impacts for other people in your family and how, how is that okay 
from your point of view. And most people are all for it because they'd, on balance, rather have the information than potentially upset their family um, or, or open up relationships that are closed off because there's an important medical need to have that conversation. On balance, most people choose to get the information that they're seeking, but it's good to go into it with open eyes. And that's what genetic counsellors are, what, that's what we're there for, to try to go through an informed consent process. So you're a science person. I want to put to you a scientific theory okay. of mine. I think with newborn babies and babies in general, there's a law of inverse proportionality. The smaller the child, the larger the heap of stuff you need to take with you when you're travelling interstate. <laughs> like the smaller the baby, you need the car seat, you need the porticot, you need the this, the blankets, the everything, the stuffed toys, the, you know, and all of that. So when you're standing there at the baggage carousel at the airport, you create a mountain of luggage. And then that, as the baby gets bigger in terms of a toddler child, that, that mountain sort of shrinks and gets smaller and smaller and smaller. How are you going? Are you match fit to be able to lug all that stuff oh. these days? How are you going with match fitness for, for the lugging of the baby gear? Have you seen Alex? the cricket kits, the size of the cricket kits these days? So I'm fine. It's nothing, Richard. is it? Right, yeah. it's fine. And I, it's it's actually lighter packing, packing for a tiny baby really? than packing for a cricket tour. Isn't that just a bat and a ball and some pads and all that? I actually had to take two helmets. Two, pretty much you take two of everything. What right. if you blow a, a boot? And you're in India. You, you want a you want a second pair of right. boots. I had to take two helmets because new, the new concussion rules. If you get a blow to the helmet, you have to replace that helmet. No one in my team has a helmet big enough to fit me. So, <laughs> <laughs> and poor Edie's inherited that trait. So um, two porticots, <laughs> two car seats. You never know. You never know. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's been such a great pleasure speaking with you, Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Alex Blackwell, former Australian cricket captain, who is also a genetic counsellor these days, and she's the co-author of her memoir, which is called Fair Game. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm James Valentine, and on the brand new season of my podcast, Headroom, I want to know, what do people believe? I believe that music is like the sinew between the spiritual and the complex. Maybe they believe in karma, heaven. Or the innate goodness of people. Even if you only believe that your avocado sandwich is the best avocado sandwich there's ever been. These are the kind of questions I'll be asking some high-profile Australians like George Miller and Claire Wright on my podcast, Headroom, The Belief Series. Available now on the ABC Listen app.